0: We live in interesting times. I don't know if it seems this way to you, but it seems to me that we are made aware of the tumultuous change that's happening uh, within society, internationally, financially, spiritually, uh, socially. There's just big forces at play in the world that have dramatic effects on our life. Maybe not in the immediate how-do-we-get-by-day-to-day, but our day-to-day is within the forces that are at play on the face of the earth. And it seems like the uh, our, our role or our place in it is not much more than a bubble on the surface of history. And yet, we each are called upon to live this human life to the best of our ability in a purposeful, uh, meaningful meaningful way. It's quite clear that the uh, vicissitudes of life as the Buddha identified them. The experiences of pleasure and pain, the experiences of gain or abundance and loss, the experience of praise and blame, and the experience of uh, renown or fame or recognition and disrepute. These are the eight vicissitudes, four pairs, that the Buddha said all beings our heir to. And we know from our own life that we've had plenty of pleasure and we've had plenty of pain and we don't escape that. And it is unrealistic to think that we will. So too with gain and loss or a sense of abundance and the feeling of being deprived. I mentioned the The communities on the northern island of Japan four years ago living their life like we do. And the earth cracks. The tsunami washes over their life. And it's gone. That which they had relied upon for security, all of their assets, their sense of community, (coughs) those that they relied on, those other people that they relied on, also affected. And while they too, like us, wished for pleasure, gain, ease, comfort, security, they really couldn't secure that or inoculate themselves against the insecurity and instability of conditions that are completely out of their control. And neither can we. But imagine that you were there and were able to get to an upper story while the waves, while you could watch the surge below you, pick up your car, to get out to sea pick up your neighbor's house to get off the foundation and after the waters recede and you're in total shock and it's hard to imagine what you would be feeling and you walk downstairs and you come out on the street who would you want to meet? what kind of person would you want to meet? At that time, your banker, your car salesperson, Uh, your kids. Somehow we'd want to meet someone, anyone who had their feet on the ground and their head in their heart. Someone who uh, was able to appraise the situation realistically, someone who could acknowledge with kindness the fear and pain that we're all suffering someone who is willing to share what they had uh, with others uh, someone who is energetic because there's a lot to do now someone who is compassionate caring for, well, everyone's suffering someone who can tell you the truth Compassionately, someone who's willing and somehow able to acknowledge that it's gone. You know, a lot of what we had is gone. You know, and there's no recovering it. Uh, even the stability of the community is gone. Someone who's able to just really see and acknowledge the truth without being unduly harsh, without being, you know, Overly dramatic. I don't know if you could be overly dramatic in that situation. It's dramatic. But also not succumbing to, you know, kind of the feeling of impotence in the face of catastrophic thinking. Someone who could feel empowered, uh, effective, autonomous able to marshal whatever resources were available within themselves and outside. So you can see that what you, who you'd want to meet are people that have, you know, just, they're just good people, kind, generous, compassionate, knowledgeable. I want to speak about that kind of person tonight because I think that as we practice the Dharma we cultivate those qualities kindness generosity compassion George Dreyfus a Tibetan translator he says happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill but it's a sense of well-being the Dalai Lama often points out that it isn't how much you have, or what you have, it's how you relate to what you have. And that it's not the accumulation, but so much as the quality of your mind in relation to what you have, that will significantly determine whether you live your life happily, at ease, with yourself and others, or whether you'll be unhappy and struggle. So you might say, as I acknowledged the other night, that you know we all have some kind of tsunami headed towards us. There's there's the unknown uh, facing each one of us, whether it's a medical diagnosis, a financial statement, um, a political upheaval of one sort or another. You know, it's just we're all heir to this, and we can't actually act in the world to prevent it and we can't insulate ourselves from experiencing it. But my understanding is that the development of our heart, the development of the qualities of mind of a good human being is maybe the most effective contingency plans for the trouble ahead that we can develop. And so I call this Contingency plans for the trouble ahead. (laughs) I don't mean to be pessimistic. This is realistic. So, these good human beings. You know, when you think of who throughout history has been notable for their human qualities, Martin Luther King, with his fearlessness in speaking truth to power... Jesus in His <clears throat> loving kindness in the face of what He was facing. Aung San Suu Suji, who lived under house arrest in Burma for so long and under military thumb, um, there's just so many. Nelson Mandela, and we have plenty in our country and any other country. And we have such people in our own life. People who live with integrity, people who are sensitive and careful. Well we have we have the same qualities that they do. We have the potential within us. In fact these kind of people <coughs> or these qualities of heart and mind being generous, kind, simple, truthful are the qualities of good people in every society at all times. Everywhere people who are kind are appreciated, people who are generous are recognized, people who are truthful or have a commitment to the truth. And these qualities of mind are the same as the what are called the ten paramis, the ten perfections in this tradition of Dharma practice. But I want to mention these ten qualities of mine because I want to speak about them in general and speak about some of them in particular. I don't know if I mentioned, but Buddha said that to establish your life in the Dharma, to rest your life on the truth, the way things are, requires three trainings, the practice of generosity, the practice of sila or living in harmony according to the precepts non-harming, and bhavana, development of mind through tranquility and insight. And any two of those are great, but not stable. We need all three of those practices to stabilize our life in the Dharma, to live a Dhammar lifestyle. So generosity and morality are two of these qualities of mind. Renunciation. The act of letting go is another of these qualities. And in fact, you remember I spoke last night about the Four Noble Truths. Second Noble Truth is the cause of dukkha, is clinging, craving. And this Second Noble Truth is to be abandoned. The clinging is to be abandoned. The whole practice of the Dharma is learning to let go. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Buddha said, nothing. And when we see the radical impermanence of everything in our life, it only makes sense to let go. But it's not easy. And so all of these practices, all of these practices, all of these qualities of mind are practices of letting go. <clears throat> Wisdom, of course, is. Necessary as well as energy. Patience, the Buddha said, patience is a supreme virtue. Supreme. It's like nothing is accomplished without patience. Truthfulness, as hard as it is, is still (coughs) a virtue. You know, and, and we know it's hard because when we know someone, when we know of someone, or when we know someone, who has a a commitment to the truth, speaking the truth, acting on the truth, acting on their own inner truth, it's notable. It's hard to make a commitment to always speak the truth. And resolve is another. Resolve is the quality of mind that is steadfast, it's not quite the same thing as a commitment, but it's knowing the direction you're going or want to go, and being willing to reorient yourself every time in that direction. Even if you don't know what's involved, you can be resolved about it. And with resolve in the mind, with resolve in the heart, it's not like you're stiff-minded and aggressive and ambitious about it. It's just you're determined, you're resolute. And sometimes that's often necessary. Loving-kindness and equanimity, two of the Brahma-viharas or the divine abidings of the heart, are also the last of the ten qualities. It is said that, you know the story of the Bodhisattva who became the Buddha... Uh, hundreds of lifetimes ago, eons and eons, an infinite time ago, uh, there was this being, uh, the ascetic Sumedha. And Sumedha had been an ascetic for some time, and his mind was very clear, very pure. And one day when he was walking for his alms in the village, there was a big hubbub in the village, and he inquired what was going on, and they said, oh, the Buddha is coming to town. And this was at the time of Dipankara Buddha, a Buddha before our time. And so he wanted to see the Buddha, so he got a place along the pathway to prepare for the Buddha, put some flowers down and whatever. So he was there, and when he saw Dipankara Buddha coming uh, towards him in the village, he, through his own development of mind, he could see the radiance, he could see the nobility, he could recognize the... uh, It's the quality of being of Dipankara Buddha. And so he understood what a Buddha was, someone (coughs) who purified their mind, perfected their minds, and uh, act in the world out of compassion for the suffering of others. So when he saw Dipankara Buddha, he had this aspiration, he had this aspiration arise in his heart that (coughs) one day he would like to become a Buddha. And Dipankra Buddha saw his mind aspire to be a Buddha, did a quick check of his karmic record just to see, (laughs) and um, acknowledged to the ascetic Sumedha that one day he would indeed become a Buddha. And in this tradition, Theravada tradition, this is how you become a Bodhisattva. You aspire to become a Buddha, and it is recognized and confirmed by a living Buddha, And then the work begins. It's also said that that ascetic, Sumedha, if he had heard one word of teaching from Dipankra Buddha, he would have been done, would have finished his work, freed his mind, uh, become fully unencumbered with attachment, aversion, and delusion at that point. But instead he made the vow to become a Buddha, and and with that he became a bodhisattva, one who is destined to become a Buddha. And to do that, he had to live, or he went through, hundreds of lifetimes, hundreds of more lifetimes in the most trying and difficult situations in order to perfect these ten qualities of mind: Generosity, renunciation, energy, truthfulness, wisdom. Hundreds of lifetimes. And when you read the stories of those lifetimes, they're called the Jataka Tales, and you read the stories of what that being in that form in that lifetime had to go through. We got it easy. <laughs> you know, nevertheless, we still have our own challenges. But someone who was so willing to undertake those lifetimes in order to perfect these qualities so that they could awaken to become a Buddha and then to have the effect that our Buddha Gautama Buddha has had in the world now who else do we know from 2500 years ago uh, has had that much effect on the world Jesus Mohammed there's a few but there's a lot that lost to history and so the power of that initial affirmation or aspiration, the resolute aspiration, I'd like to become a Buddha, survived in that mind for hundreds of lifetimes and for thousands of years thereafter. (coughs) We are here today because of that aspiration, of that ascetic, all that time ago. That's powerful. Powerful mind-making and making an aspiration like that to have the continuing effect that it does. Our lives are not any different. Just as we are affected by others around us, whether it's at the office or in our family or in our neighborhood or on the political stage, as we are affected by them, others are affected by us. And if we live with this quality of resolve, renunciation, energy, wisdom, truthfulness, it'll have an effect. So the Bodhisattva perfected these qualities in order to become the Buddha. And what that means is he made, through his practices, he made these qualities the default setting of his mind, meaning that in every situation, the most challenging, the most difficult, the most trying situation, it's generosity that comes to mind rather than stinginess. It's energy that comes to mind rather than feeling unenergized. It's loving kindness that comes to mind instead of any form of aversion. It's equanimity that comes to mind other than any kind of partisanship. Wow. Default setting. Not like he's got to stop and think about it. It's just that's the automatic. Arising in his mind, in his heart, in every situation is to have these qualities. So while we see this and the value of these qualities in the Buddha, and we might appreciate them in our own times of trouble, we too have the potential. We all know that we, we we've been generous we've been loving, we've been understanding, we've been resolute, we've been truthful. We we have these qualities of mind to some degree. There is a potential for further development in our heart. And we all know that. And we all know that we have a choice. Many times a day, if we can remember that patience is an option. Equanimity, rather than shrill partisanship is an option. So, while we have these qualities inherent in us, they may not yet be developed. And the way they are developed is to recognize them and recognize that we too have them within us. And if we acquire the knowledge and the aspiration to develop them then we can practice and receive the instruction receive the guidance watch our own efforts to uh, develop them and learn from our mistakes as Saito Tajaniya says mistakes are the stepping stones to wisdom Mm -hmm. so in that sense there's really no mistake we just have opportunities to develop wisdom if we if we're paying attention with that understanding. But let's face it, to choose to develop these qualities of heart and mind is going to bring us face to face with our conditioning. And our conditioning is to not always to be that loving. It's not always to let go. It's not always to tell the truth. And in our society, as much as we would like to think that, you know, we are generous and we can be truthful and we can be uh, non-harming, sila When you look at the society we live in, and I'm not picking anybody in mind, but just the, size, the culture, not just our society, but the whole culture. It's like... Humankind does not display these qualities in space. I mean, it's just... There are people, yeah, but the, the story of history is just littered with people not keeping the precepts, people not developing or acting on these qualities of mind. And even in our own life and times, to have an opinion about everything, whether you know anything about it or not, is necessary. To have a a kind of an equanimous, balanced mind in a political discourse is useless, ineffective. And so we are taught to have a very partisan view of everything and to be shrill in speaking. That's our conditioning. And if we're going to try to develop equanimity, we may feel very ineffective. But that's something to weigh. Is it more important to develop equanimity in your own heart or not? Or we take truthfulness. We live in a society that condones and rewards not telling the truth whether it's Wall Street or Washington or Hollywood or your neighborhood we don't we don't I mean we, we tolerate it I mean the advertising that we live with is phenomenal it's not true and does anyone and I don't mean just current but does anyone ever trust politicians to speak the truth it's like it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to. And so, what happens when we live in a culture, live in a society like that? Well, we tolerate it, and we expect it, and we suffer because of it, and we act like that ourselves. Well, society's standards of truthfulness and non-harming, and equanimity and loving kindness may not be sufficient to awaken. And so, we're going to bump up against some social norms, more race conventions. In fact, the Buddha said, to practice the Dharma is to go against the stream of society. It's to go against it. Because society is just kind of washing all, going on all downstream, following, well, we see. And to practice the Dharma is it's not just... Dharma punks that have kind of claimed against the stream is their own you know kind of mantra it's the Buddha saying you know the Dharma is against the stream but when we think of these qualities generosity loving kindness etc they're not even Buddhist (laughs) I mean there's nothing Buddhist about speaking the truth loving kindness or generosity it's just it's a, good, it's a quality of a good human being anywhere. And neither are they very spiritual. They're rather ordinary, actually. They're certainly not very esoteric. <clears throat> they're not very vague, remote. They're not exotic. They're just normal, if you might say. They're just kind of common. They're kind of like mundane, as can be. And yet, they're pretty rare to have them develop to... What I would call a perfection, where they become the default setting of the mind. So, while we recognize these qualities, these paramis, as a potential within us, we may not have chosen to value them in our own life, in our own heart, and in the hearts in the lives of others. So, while it may be an obvious choice of good behavior we may not have decided, we may not have reflected within ourselves. This is something of value to me, something I wish to uh, develop, something I am committed to. And so we can give lip service to any and all of them, but to act to develop them is a whole quantum step more than that. Because when we make a personal decision to activate these qualities of mind, we can be sure we're going to uh, rub up against mm, the, the edge of our comfort and discomfort, both internally and externally. And we'll need to cultivate mindfulness because mindfulness is to remember, to recognize the present moment and when we do, we can recognize, oh, I'm not being very kind, I'm not speaking the truth. Oh, I'm not acting harmlessly. I'm not very resolved and I don't have enough energy. Wow, okay. Okay, right. So there's room. But that's what that's what we're taking upon ourselves if we say, yes, I want to develop these qualities of mind. And I'll tell you why. It's because these qualities of mind are the basis for your liberation. The depth of your liberation is totally dependent on the development of your paramis. And if the paramis are weak, your depth of liberation is very thin. And if your development of the paramis is deep, so too is your liberation. And so the understanding in Burma and not only Burma but where I suffer in Burma and probably throughout the Buddhist world Is that the householders' practice of mindfulness, householders in their general domestic, civic, social, professional activities? The dharma practice of householders is the paramis. They're all mindfulness practices, they're all practices of compassion, they're all practices that, when practiced correctly, will lead to happiness, and they lay the foundation for insight, liberating liberating insight. And by paying attention, by being mindful of the opportunity to be patient, the opportunity to be more balanced, equanimous, and then we act on it, we'll pay attention to the result of our actions and have the opportunity to measure whether or to see whether it was effective or not. Whether it really brought some kind of ease to the heart and mind or whether it got us further entangled in <coughs> some attachment version. So this is really, you know, taking the parames as not just a potential but as a personal choice is to choose to develop qualities of a good human being. The other thing, you may have noticed on the little posters, wherever they have posted, in all the bathrooms, I guess, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, when you're on retreat, you'll read anything. <laughs> <laughs> toilet wrappers, <and> shampoo bottles, <laughs> <laughs> no, right? So you might as well put something good in there, okay? So all these, all these paramis are uh, also practices of the Eightfold Path Factors. And I've, I've, I've mentioned them, some of them, during the retreat. They're all mindfulness practices, they're all happiness practices, they're all practices of letting go, practicing the second noble truth, abandoning, clinging, abandoning, craving. One, uh, one retreatant uh, at the end of a retreat like this said, I want to live a Dharma lifestyle. I don't want to live the re- lifestyle of a retreat. And I think we all understand we don't want to live. And retreat is not meant to be a lifestyle. It may be for, you know, a week, three months, even for a few years as a monk or a nun. You can practice like this. But this is not, you know, the silent, slow, continuous. This is not the lifestyle for hardly any uh, Buddhist. For periods of time, yes. But it's to develop the practice is to develop these qualities in our heart and then live in the world with them to have our effect in the world not to just and this is the, the dilemma or the question that the Buddha faced upon his awakening what do I do with this knowledge what do I do with this liberated mind <coughs> and his thought was to just kind of withdraw from the world and in the mountains and just enjoy it I still think about that. that, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> and, uh, but instead, you know, he took it upon himself to spend forty-five years teaching people. And if you read the stories of the Buddha's experiences in his forty-five years of teaching, he had a very difficult time with a lot of people, it wasn't easy. So, as we practice these paramis, we're going to, you know, uh, rub up against our discomfort zone. And as we learn how to practice, and they're like any other practice, It it takes practice to learn how to be happy practicing renunciation. It takes practice learning how to be happy having an equanimous balanced mind rather than a very opinionated mind. It takes practice. And so we practice and learn, practice and learn, define and learn. And that's why repetition is the key to success. Understanding is the benefit of the practice. Letting go is the tool of liberation. And we can know that we succeed, or that we're improving, or we're progressing, or however you want to think of it, when to practice any of the parames really makes us happy. Both in the immediate, you know, in the in the immediate act, and in the future uh, reflection upon that. So I won't go over all of the things to be let go of, since you all read them while we're waiting in the toilet. <laughs> no, whatever. But tonight I'd like to speak about one and tomorrow night I'll speak about another. And tonight I want to speak about generosity because the Buddha, it seemed, always started with generosity because it is the practice of letting go. It's not particularly a Buddhist practice. It doesn't require uh, even Buddhist teachings to practice. But it is the basic practice of letting go, learning how to let go and be happy with that. Um, our conditioning is to, mostly, to get and acquire and hold on for our own use. Now, I'm not saying people aren't generous. In fact, people are generous and share a lot, both of their uh, knowledge, their time, their energy, their resources. So I'm not saying that we aren't generous. I'm just saying that the practice of generosity is about learning to let go Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the forefathers of our tradition of practice here, he said, it's generosity that one can rely on for their wealth, happiness, and humanity. Health, happiness, and humanity. So I'll tell you a story about that. So years, several years ago, I was working with a group uh, in Portland. And I would go to Portland half a dozen times a year to work with them for a day or two. And when I was there, i stayed at a hotel in town and eat my meals in the local restaurants. And I've always lived in the country, uh, really in the rural farmland, so I'm not that familiar or even comfortable in cities, really. But when I was there, there were a lot of homeless people in Portland. <laughs> Just a lot. Now, I don't know if Portland's any different than the other city, probably not. But they were very visible where I was staying, in the hotels I was staying in. And I'd come out of the hotel, and whichever direction I turned to go to find a restaurant, there would be homeless people and beggars and panhandlers on the street. And because of my discomfort, I would try to avoid them. I'd cross the street, they would over there, I'd go back up the back door, I'd go down the alleyways, but they were every, everywhere. So it didn't take me too long to realize I was really uncomfortable. And I was not happy. And I was afraid of them. And I didn't understand them. And I didn't know what was expected of me. And I was confused. And what I realized is, I'm suffering. I'm suffering. With their condition. I mean, I I can see that and I can have compassion. But I'm also suffering with my own fear and confusion and unknowing. And so I said, wow, you know, it's not like they're going to do anything about my suffering. (laughs) You know, so I have to do something about my suffering. So I made the intent, had the intention to um, confront my own fear by greeting them, meeting them, speaking with them. So I made it a, a practice of just going up to and speaking with the homeless Ben- panhandlers, the beggars, if they were coherent and, I mean, some weren't, but if they were able to be approached and connected with, and most are. And, it was really amazing. It didn't take long before I realized these are people. <laughs> I mean, you know, somehow we get this image or something, like they're just so far gone or so far out there, I don't know, just can't relate to them. And yet, they were all very easy. To, I found them very easy to relate to, because I would ask them like, "How's it going? You know, How's it going today?" You know, and they have an answer. It's not like they're incoherent or they don't have an answer. They're not just hostile or anything. They just, you know, well, it's going good today. It's not going good. I'm looking for this, and I'd always ask them, "What do you What do you need?" That got some interesting answers. <laughs> you know, and yet it was a way to connect with them. And, you know, I would speak for a few minutes and then offer them a token of support, whether it's a dollar or two or five. And I would walk away and I'd feel great. I'd feel happy. It was just like, wow, that was fantastic, actually. And they too would have some kind of connection and acknowledgement that they were seeing, they were acknowledged and I realized that what I was actually doing for myself and them was acknowledging our common humanity and being willing to acknowledge their humanity even in their situations I'm not going to solve their problems that's not that wasn't my (coughs) task or not possible and yet I could offer them a connection and whatever I offered them, to them, was a sense of, you know, receiving something. And for me, it, was, it wasn't it was much as far as financial outlay, but it was coming from a sense of abundance. I have enough. I have enough to offer to them. And so I always felt like I had plenty, even if, you know, whatever I do have. And what I also realized is that when I would stop and speak with them and offer this little gift, what I really gave was love. Whether it was $1 or $5 really wasn't the point. The point was, I acknowledged that as a human being, that I cared something about them. And that was the real gift. And that's what we give with every act of generosity, is Love. and when you give love, you feel happy. And of course the other person does too. So, Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about generosity? If he would never let an opportunity go by without sharing, if there was someone to share with. He lived a lot of lifetimes before he became the Buddha. He must have learned a lot. (coughs) So Nicholas Kristof, one of the op-ed writers of the New York Times, wrote this um, column a while back. And he said, Research at the National Institute of Health has found that when one thinks of offering generosity to charity, Areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, (laughs) implying that we are hardwired to be altruistic. And he concluded that while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. Wow. Not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's sex... <laughs> Good. Generosity. Okay. Right, I like that. So as we practice generosity, we can come from a place of sharing, but also out of compassion for not only the recipient, but ourself. Because the practice of generosity ennobles our own life. It's not just helping those who need help. Our hearts also need help in being less attached to things, stuff, our sense of poverty, our sense of whatever it is. And so, when we practice generosity, we're not just helping the recipient, we're actually nurturing and nourishing our own heart to be more connecting, to be more generous, and learning how to let go is not, it's not the learning how to let go of your resources, it's learning how to let go of your attachment to resources, to sense of self, to views and opinions, it's learning how to let go of attachment that we're learning when we practice generosity. Okay. So, another story. Before I went to Burma, I was living in, to become a monk, I was living in Massachusetts I read a newspaper article about a potter living by who was um, he was, uh, did pottery in the Japanese a Japanese tradition where he fired his uh, kill with wood and he had uh, brought over and built a Japanese tea house in his near his uh, pottery studio and display room and he offered had someone from Japan there offering tea ceremony well I didn't know what that was about, but it sounded interesting, so I decided to go. So I went to uh, see him, and I went to his place. And it was an old New England farm and farmhouse and barn that had been converted to a potter's studio, workshop, and gardens. He had these beautiful gardens all around the place. So I wandered around for a couple hours, just poking my head into the shops and the showroom where he did his work and the kill and all that. Had the tea ceremony. And I wanted to thank him for just creating such a beautiful place because it was like, you know, when you go to some of these beautiful gardens, you walk around, it's like a meditation. It just, it transforms your mind. And that's what that did to me. So I wanted to uh, thank him and I inquired but he wasn't there. He was traveling. So I said, okay, well, I'll come back. Later I found out when he was back and I wanted to take him a gift because I felt like he'd offered all of his efforts to us, to me, freely. So I wanted to offer him something. I didn't have much at the time. I was <coughs> not very skillful with money. But I used to bake bread every week. So every weekend I'd bake bread because I was a builder and ate a lot of bread. But I always baked six loaves and during the week I'd eat five. So I always had one to give away. So I wanted to give him a loaf of bread. He was a single guy, about 55, 60 maybe. And um, so I said, maybe he'll like bread. So I took over this loaf of bread. And I gave it to him. I told him about how much I appreciated his gardens and his pottery. And But his pottery was too expensive. I couldn't afford any of that. But anyway, I appreciated it. and I enjoyed the tea ceremony. Thank you very much. Here's a loaf of bread. He said, thank you very much. And by the way, next time I fire him, I kill. Would you like to help? So... I said, yeah. So he called me up back around the full moon of December. I remember it was really cold. And he said, it's going to fire to kill. And what he done, it takes an hour, a day and a half or so, uh, 30 hours, 40 hours, to fire this kill. This wood. <coughs> so he you get it started. And after he'd been doing it, putting wood in for 10, 12 hours, or whatever, then he needed some rest. So he asked me, Come and I learned how to monitor the temperature of the kiln and throw in the sticks of wood and do that while he went to get some sleep. So throughout the night, I was in this shed. It was freezing cold. It was full moon and it was hotter than hate because it got this this firebox, three fireboxes, where you just keep throwing the wood in through these little holes and 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 you just watch the temperature going up and up and it's hot. And I was just sweating bullets. And I'd step outside into the freezing cold. It was just gorgeous. It was just such a pristine night. It was just wonderful. I just had a great time. Later in the morning, he came back, and I, I could go home and get some sleep. And he was going to finish the firing. And he said, "When the, after the firing and the kill cools, I'll call you up, and you can come over and help me unload. I said, OK. So a day and a half, two days later, he called up and said, I'm going to unload the kill. Come on over. So I helped him unload. We were taking out all the pieces you know, I don't know it used to must have been hundreds or whether we're hundreds I don't know several hundred. and as we would take them out he'd look at it and say oh yeah and he'd put it here and, oh yeah put it there and everything that he considered a ten meaning museum quality he, he put over there and then he had everything else over here and at the end of unloading he said take your pick you can have anything you want except any of the tens I said wow cool okay so I I looked around and I just wanted something practical, so I got this little bowl that's about a right size of a meal bowl. Not a big meal, not a little meal, but it's (laughs) right. (laughs) so I I got this bowl and I thought, oh, that's great. So I used it. I used it. I ate one of it all the time. And every time I went on retreat, I took it with me when I was on retreat, so I would know how much to eat. I invested a lot of attachment into that bowl. Anyway, I used it for a few years, then I went off to Burma and ordained, <coughs> packed all my stuff in my truck, left it there. And uh, when I came back, after five years as a monk, I was so grateful for my teachers who had introduced me to the dharma, that I wanted to give them gifts. And so I looked through my stuff, and the most valuable thing I had was this bowl. So I said, oh, I really like this bowl. I, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I was in a real generous and, and I'd been practicing renunciation for five years. Letting go of a bowl was not going to be that tough. So I, I offered it to one of my teachers who had just had a new house built. And so she received the bowl and I was really happy to give it to her because she has been such a teacher, important Dharma teacher for me and instead of using it in her kitchen, she put it on her mantle as kind of a showpiece and I would see it there every time I went to her house for a few years and it just reminded me of how happy I was to get it, use it and offer it to her and she too had it there in place of to be noticed time passed forgot about it and uh, after a few more years, I was invited to uh, dinner in, in Cambridge with a woman who was a, a great supporter of the Dharma. So I went and she was inquiring about how I was doing with my teaching and stuff like that. And So we had an afternoon, tete a tete outside in the garden. <clears throat> As it got cooler in the evening, we went into her, her cottage and came there to have tea and you know, finish the conversation. And she was a good yogi. She practiced a lot, so she had given most of her stuff away. She lived very simply, actually. And in her little bungalow, uh, in the kitchen, in the dining room, living room area, it was just a little efficiency type place. There was, you know, her table, and then there was a little Buddha about two inches high on the mantle of the fireplace, and over in the corner was a, a chair, a coffee table, and then a two-person love seat type of thing. So she said, we can have our tea over here. So I go home and I sit down, and uh, she sits down the other chair, and were the coffee tables in front of us. I looked at the coffee table, and there's that bowl. So I said oh, well, that's a really nice bowl you have there. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, uh, yeah, you know, I got it as a gift from one of my teachers. It was great. It's really nice. It's the only thing in the whole room is this bowl. <laughs> goes, yeah, it's really nice. you know the history of that bowl? She says, no. And I said, well, let me tell you about it. <laughs> so I told her about it, and we, we just had a great connection over... Uh, over the bowl and her teacher had given it to her out of gratitude and for whatever just wanting to be generous in return and when I think about that bowl you know the potter offered it to me and he was happy to offer it and I was happy to receive it I was happy to use it and I was happy to give it away and my teacher was happy to receive it happy to use it and happy to give it away and the current recipient was happy to receive it and was happy to use it. That bowl has brought more happiness to all of us than you could ever buy with what it actually cost. And I don't feel like I have lost it. It feels like I still have it. Not not personally to have, but it's like it's in my heart in 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 a way of happiness and, generosity, and every time I think about it, I get happy. And this is something to remember about generosity. You get happy when you think about being generous. You're happy when you're actually practicing it. <coughs> and every time you think about your act of generosity, you get happy. So if you want to be happy, pile up the memories of being generous. And then every time you think of it, you'll be happy. It works. And don't give anything away everything stays in the heart you know I mean we can let go of it we're not holding on to it but the happiness lasts forever the bowl won't a wise person the Buddha said gives a gift carefully gives it with his or her own hands gives it showing respect gives a valuable gift, gives it with the understanding that something will come of it, and on the dissolution of the body after death, will reappear great among the gods or great among human beings. And why is it that the Buddha said, oh, you should give a gift carefully, with mindfulness and awareness. Give it with your own hands. Give it showing respect, giving a gift of value. Because when we practice generosity... All of those conditions make an impression on the heart, on the mind. And if you see the gift, and you feel your own non-attachment, and you see the recipient, and you see their happiness in receiving it, and you have the happiness of offering it, all of this deeply impacts the mind. And that's karma. And the more powerful the karma, the more impact it has on your, your mind, the more powerful the result, happiness. So the Buddha said, don't just be casual about it, just don't be kind of disrespectful about it, don't just kind of toss off anything, but really put your heart into the practice of generosity so that the effect and the benefit to you of happiness and non-attachment is apparent, is really noticeable, it's effective, if you will. as I said, dana or practice generosity, is one of the three pillars of establishing our life in the Dharma. There's more that could be said, but I'm just going to wrap it up with this acknowledgement by Visakha. Visakha was the chief patroness of the Buddha. She was the one along with I can't remember his name. Anatha Pindaka. Huh? Pindaka? Yeah, not Pindaka. not and Visakha were always the ones that provided the big events, always did the ceremonies of the Buddha, always provided everything, ended up giving away all their wealth. But she says, when I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I'm glad, I'll be happy And when the mind is happy, my body will be at ease and tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, it'll feel pleasant. I'll feel pleasure. And when I feel pleasure, my mind will become quite collected and stable. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties that I spoke about the other night, the spiritual powers and the factors of the mind. Just the practice of generosity supports the arising of the five spiritual faculties. We're well on our way to liberation. The Buddha also said, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. And the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. The gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. So the gift that we each have to offer in our life is our Dharma. As we practice the Dharma, as we grow into the commitment to awaken and we speak the truth and we live not harming and we're generous and we're compassionate, we live in the world among others without causing them harm, without being a bother, being more of a benefactor. And just to live our life in the Dharma is a gift to everyone that you share life with. Because you may not become known as a great yogi. That's not the point. But we live with a life of uh, a, a heart of caring, a heart of generosity, a heart of compassion, understanding, patience. And this is a good human being. Others will like you. Others will respect you others will value having you in their life. So this is the gift that our work here is to everyone we share life with. It looks like we're here alone doing our own thing, kind of self-absorbed, navel-gazing, whatever you want to call it. It seems like, yeah, I'm just kind of away. I'm not not dealing with other people. But actually, we are. We're developing the qualities of mind that can be most beneficial to others. And as we live our life, our dharma lifestyle, I don't mean being proselytizing, not that. You don't have to be a Buddhist, just be a Buddha. Others get the benefit. As Mahasitaya acknowledged, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, a sense of abundance. One's happiness and one's humanity.